Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real, and I am as, ex- as excited as possible for today's episode. Today I want to talk a little bit about Fowler stages of faith, but I also want to offer two additional perspectives on those two stages. Also, to give you a heads up, in the next uh, month or two, you're also going to hear an episode where John Westover comes back onto the program, and him and I talk about another uh, paradigm of faith theory which comes from, I believe his first name is William, but William Perry's uh, Cognitive and Ethical uh, Development. It's uh, They call it kind of in short Perry's Scheme uh, of Development. And it will offer, I think, a, another way in which to see faith development that is positive, encouraging, and helping us kind of make this faith transition. But today I want to focus on Fowler. And I think most of you, most of you know who Fowler uh, is. It's uh, William James Fowler. He came up with this theory of faith development, and he split things up into six stages. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on the first two. They're they're kind of what we would find mostly in adolescence, uh, in little children and in adolescence. But towards the end of adolescence, he begins to talk about stage three. And stage three is the stage of faith that that most of us get into, but also perhaps most of us never exit. And it is a, a very literal faith a very black and white way of seeing things. It uh, it also involves the authority of our beliefs being extrinsic. By that I mean that if one in stage three were to list the things they believe and the things they hold to be true, it would be apparent from the words they use that it's not intrinsically held, but rather that the, the authority of those beliefs is based on outward authorities, others outside of themselves that they trust. So perhaps it comes from parents or a friend at school or prophets and apostles or the scriptures, but in no way have they really deeply formed these beliefs inside of themselves. Rather, they are just rehashing what someone else has told them or what some other source has shared with them. And stage three is a, is a beautiful place to be. It, faith is simple. There's answers to all questions. You simply have to ask the right authority, but one realizes there are authorities out there and they have the answers to the questions. But the issue is that eventually some of us enter into what is Fowler calls stage four. And stage four is kind of a a stage of of deep transition where one realizes for the first time that there may not be answers to all the questions that that the authorities that one originally placed their trust in may not have the answers. In fact, may say things that would be in conflict with what is felt to be the answer. One is beginning to shift 
the authority of their beliefs extrinsically to intrinsically. And this can be a stage of turmoil. If, if the shift happens early on, if one is opened up to nuance and complexity early on in life as a teenager per se, one will make this shift more smoothly. But if one does not one is not introduced to these concepts and does not make this shift until later, perhaps late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, then it can be a stage of deep turmoil because it, it just rocks to the core the foundation and framework that one has put together. But eventually, moving out of this stage four, some, very few people, move into stage five. And stage five is kind of a reconciliation. It, it almost goes back to the same behaviors of stage three but for completely different reasons. And one's faith in God, while torn apart in stage four, is put back together in stage five. For those of you who want to know more about these stages of faith, I will share plenty of sources and resources on uh, on this episode. I don't want to get into too much detail. But what I do want to do is I want to begin talking a little bit about uh, these stages from two alternative sources. The first one is an article titled Faith Development and Faith Formation, more than just ages and stages. And it's written by Robert J. Keeley, which, by the way, I've approached Mr. Keeley, and he has agreed to be on the podcast in about a month. And so you should hear from him shortly following uh, this episode as well. He gives a brief overview of Fowler's stages, but from the perspective of a religious uh, pastor trying to reach out to the youth in his congregation or in his faith. The, the second article came from a website, thebattleofarmageddon.com, and it's an article there titled Stages of Faith, and I will share the PDF of that as well. So without uh, further ado, let's talk a little bit about stage three uh, from the perspective of the article uh, by Mr. Uh, Mr. Keeley. So Mr. Keeley, in talking about stage three, and, and he goes through lots of important uh, realizations that come in this stage and also observations that others can make of someone in this stage. And I, and I want to be clear here. Nobody is ever in just one stage of faith. We all have uh, a foot in, in more than one stage. We're always transitioning. And some parts of our personality may be in a stage behind us. Some parts of our behavior may be in a stage in front of us. But a large chunk will usually be found in one stage. But in this stage three, uh, Mr. Keeley makes this observation. He says, another important issue in both this stage and the next is the location of authority. For young children, authority for many things is clearly located with their parents. Parents have control over many of their decisions, certainly the big ones. Early on, for example, parents pick out the clothes their children wear. As they get older, they begin to make their choices themselves. Those first choices come from a limited set of options, usually chosen by their parents. Later, the choices are completely their own. As children grow into teens and into young adults, location of that authority shifts from being primarily external with parents to being primarily internal. People who are in Fowler's synthetic conventional stage of faith, whether they are teens or much older, find their source of authority for their faith is primarily located outside themselves. Cult leaders use this sort of authority structure to help them control the people who follow them. Some Christian leaders who see themselves as having God-given authority over their flock may structure their church in a synthetic conventional mode, depending on their followers to pretty much do what they say. While it is easy to paint these people in a purely negative light, 
There are, of course, a number of examples of Christian leaders who do not abuse this authority and who care deeply for the people in their congregations. But the point is the same. The people who are in the synthetic conventional stage of faith give over much of the authority for their faith to someone else. So this stage three is called synthetic conventional uh, a con- conventional stage. And I think this is important. Again, this is talking about this idea of locating uh, the faith out this um, this authority for their faith outside of themselves, and I think I think most of us who are in stage four or beyond can look back and very clearly see this. the The trouble is that you can very rarely ever see ahead of yourself in this paradigm. That if someone is in stage three and another person is in stage four, the stage three person cannot really understand and grasp what this stage four person is going through. To add on to that, very much I feel like I've got a foot and a half in stage four. And as we talk about stage four, I think many of you will relate as well. And I can read, I read a bunch about stage five. And we'll share some of that in today's episode as well. And I, and it, and intellectually, I can make sense of it. But in my heart, I cannot figure out how to implement it. It just, it just feels foreign to me. And I think many in stage three would look at those of us struggling in stage four and would say, wow, that just feels so foreign to me. I cannot grasp why that person is saying what they're saying, thinking what they're thinking, and feeling what they're feeling. And I think we all just have to come to grips that from where we're at, what lies ahead is seen through a glass darkly. And so that was a little bit of that uh, that synthetic conventional stage from Mr. Keeley's point of view. We'll get back to, to Mr. Keeley and uh, and talking about uh, the way in which he frames stage four and stage five, but I want to go to this Battle of Armageddon uh, document, this uh, the stages of faith PDF that I'll share because I think this is deep and uh, and I want to zero in. I want to zero in on what this article taught. What this article calls the Dark Night of the Soul. For those of us who have made this transition from stage three into stage four. Abruptly and at a, and at a, and may perhaps an older age. And, and again, not everybody is that going to be the case. Some people will have a faith crisis at a younger age. I have a good friend who, who came back from his mission and very quickly slipped into a, a deep crisis of faith over the same issues that I struggled with in, in he was in his early twenties. And so by no means do I say this only happens to older people, but by, by, you know, by far it is generally an abrupt transition and it is in an older age. And this stage four can be can be horrible. It can be very frustrating. So I want to share here. He titles the stage Beyond Stage Three, The Dark Night of the Soul. The article says this. It says at the very height of spiritual success, something tends to happen that we least expect, usually between the ages of thirty and fifty. And and I should stop here and say this. This article was written to pastors of whatever faith, I'm assuming some type of uh a Protestant church, but this article was written to pastors and directly at them in the things they're experiencing. So it says, uh, something tends to happen that we least expect. He says, when followers are increasing, people are feeling blessed, funds are flowing in to support the ministry, and awards are being given, comes a very unwelcome guest. It is a personal crisis many have called the dark night of the soul. Past certainties suddenly become inadequate. We call into question everything we have ever believed and everything we have ever done. We feel like failures, like we don't do anything right. 
we are humbled, our world caves in. Our faith, which sustained us powerfully up until this point, doesn't seem to work anymore. All of our answers are replaced with questions. God either vanishes from view or breaks out of the comfortable comfortable box we held him in. We hit bottom. We reach the end of our rope. We hit the wall and can seem to go no further on the spiritual journey. We have saved others, but ourselves we cannot save. We feel completely alone and abandoned by God. As one person put it, just when I got it all together, I forgot where I put it. There are many examples of this phenomenon in the Bible. The classic case is Job, who did nothing to deserve it, yet went through both real-life tragedy and an inner crisis of spiritual depression almost to the point of suicide. Job chapter 3, 1 through 26. I think of Jonah, whose life as a prophet was going just fine until God disrupted everything with a big fish. I think of Elijah, who at the point of the greatest spiritual triumph on Mount Carmel went immediately to the deepest level of discouragement, found in 1 Kings 19, 3-4. I think of Jesus, who at the very point his glorious mission is revealed to him, ends up 40 days in the desert under the attack of Satan. The dark night of the soul seems like an end of all of our spiritual hopes and dreams, but it is not. It is actually a summons to deeper intimacy with God. It reveals that all our successes, all the good things we have done, were to some degree motivated by ambition and selfishness or by a desire to please others. We discover that our strong sense of purpose in stage three was driven by others and or the church as much as by God. We realize that while the God we have known up until this point was real, we need to rediscover him as if for the first time. The dark night of the soul can be precipitated by many things. It could simply be a stage of life, what some people call a midlife crisis. This often comes to people between the ages of 30 and 50. It could be precipitated by an external event, such as a rebellious child, the loss of a job, or the death of a loved one. Sometimes it is precipitated by an internal event, such as a physical illness, or the resurfacing of an emotional trauma that was buried in the past up until this point. The dark night of the soul can simply be the sense that God has withdrawn his presence from our lives. We seek him, but we cannot find him. A young psychiatrist once asked me, what is the difference between the dark night of the soul and clinical depression? I agreed that there is such a thing as clinical depression, a darkness fueled by chemical imbalances or other disorders. But the dark night of the soul is a depression that comes from a call from God to go deeper with him. It can be combined with clinical symptoms of depression, but includes a strong dimension of spiritual crisis. Most people feel distressed about this development. They believe that God's presence in the life should soothe the spirit, calm all fears, and bring joy to life's journey. The dark night seems like a wrong turn, a sign that they have somehow lost their spiritual way. They are tempted to defeat it or back away from it. The ego rises up to resist the experience. They may feel guilt or shame-ridden, feeling that they have deserved this experience. They may put themselves down or in some sense enjoy their misery. Spiritual leaders may feel that dark nights are for the people, not for them. They are supposed to be strong and confident in God. They feel the need to hide the darkness from others, even from themselves. They may feel all alone, as if no one else is going through an experience like it. But in spite of how it feels, this darkness is actually a call from God. It is a positive sign. It is a sign that God is deeply engaged in your life. While doubt can be a negative thing for spiritual life, the dark night of the soul is a doubt that can lead to a deeper faith. You cannot deal with a dark night by working 60 hours a week or trying to ignore it. 
The pain is there for a purpose. God uses it to call people to drink in it, to learn what needs to be learned. The best remedy for the dark night is lots of solitude, in which to listen to God's voice, to feel what he is trying to communicate, to think and reflect. A high-level mentor can also be an asset at this point, someone who has been through the dark night and survived it, who has moved on and incorporated the things God wanted to teach through it. But there are two major points of concern that potential mentors need to keep in mind when someone is in the dark night. First, there is the temptation to back off from the experience and go back to stage three. That is the place where the individual was successful. That is the place when things were going well. That is the place where God seemed near. So there is the temptation to reject the dark night and go back to the place where you were successful. And this may seem to be a successful tack. You go back to what you did when you were successful. You do the things you did before. And most people will probably not notice the difference in your work. The problem is that you will know deep down inside that God called you and said no. So the person becomes what I call a hollow three. A person who is going through the motions of leadership and success, but there is something missing. He or she has gotten stuck in the trappings of success, but the heart of spiritual life is gone. From my experience teaching thousands of pastors through the years, I would estimate 50 to 60% of pastors take this course. And that may be one reason so many churches appear to be spiritually dead. Perhaps 25% of spiritual leaders go in a different direction. They see the dark night of the soul as a calling into question their entire spiritual journey up to that point. They believe the reason for the dark night is not the call of God, but the failure and error of the religious institution that they aligned with in stage two. The shattering of spiritual confidence that comes with the dark night can bring great disillusionment regarding the confidence of stages two and three. And this is normally a healthy thing, but the dark night results in a sidestep if one gives up all that one believes in or abandons one's spiritual heritage in the illusion that some other institution will not have spiritual, similar spiritual flaws. I don't mean to imply that it is never spiritually productive to change religions but that one must do so for the right reasons. Perhaps a quarter of pastors, in my experience, leave the church during the dark night because they can find no suitable mentor and and interpret God's call as a call to leave one's faith for another or even to leave the faith entirely. Perhaps 10 or 15% of those who walk the spiritual journey stay the course, drink in the lessons God wants to teach them, and move on to stage four. With the help of a high-level mentor, stage four beyond, they become increasingly aware of their own self-centeredness. They come to understand that all their spiritual efforts up until now were driven largely by self and by the expectations of others in the church. They learn to recognize the call of God in the dark night to break away from self and go deeper into the walk with God than they had ever imagined. They learn to see themselves as God sees them and accept their own humanness and limitations. They begin to learn how to forgive themselves and to forgive others. Their love for themselves begins to deepen because of the deep love they discover God has for them, and with it, an increase in love for others. They may have known these things intellectually before, but now they drink these insights deep into their soul and embrace them as persons who are becoming more and more whole. How do you mentor someone who's going through the dark night of the soul? Very patiently. High-level mentors are a precious resource at this time. Suffering people will dump their hurt, frustrations, anger, and loneliness on you. Don't offer answers the way Job's friends did. Just be present with them. Avoid shock. 
Just listen and empathize with them as they wrestle with traumatic memories and regret. Share your own dark night. If you haven't been through it, you probably can't be much help. Assure them that what they are going through is normal in the walk with God. Share the stories of Elijah, Job, Peter, and Jesus. Radiate your own acceptance of them as a token of God's acceptance. Forgive them as needed and encourage them to experience the forgiveness of God. In most cases, the day will come when the dark night ends and they will be able to move on. Some people might experience this dark night more than once in order to make it through. But eventually, if they stay the course, they can move on. I want to end that part of uh, this article here. And I just, I just think this hits home for, for several reasons. Uh, one is that this, I think, speaks directly to what I anyway, what I felt in this, in this early onset of this dark night of the soul. It speaks right to the heart of what I was feeling. And I think it'll speak to the heart of what many of you have felt. Second, it, uh, it describes it in a way that I think others who are outside of this paradigm could begin to kind of understand and say, whoa, I get it. This person is going through something really difficult. The third point, and I think very important, and it's one I have not seen this clearly elsewhere, is the idea that this dark night of the soul is not an opportunity to discard God, but rather it's God's effort with us to get us to completely deepen our faith and to completely re-evaluate who God is and what he is to us. And I think this positive turn on this, on these stages of faith are super important to helping us get through them and again leading with faith. I want to go back to, uh, to the ages and stages article by Mr. Keeley. And he begins to, to talk about this stage four. He finishes off talking about stage three and then making the transition to talking about stage four. He says this is in contrast to the fourth stage individuative, reflective faith. That's what Fowler called it, by the way, is individuative, individuative, reflective faith. He says, this is a stage that is characterized by what happens when we take control of our faith, when the authority for our faith comes to reside within us instead of with someone else. This often happens at the same time as other significant life changes, like moving away from home. Again, the shift in the center of authority doesn't happen overnight. But moving away from home, perhaps moving away to college, can be a trigger to make it happen more quickly. Or it can initiate the beginning of such a shift. Sometimes this move merely results in a relocation of authority from parents to someone else and does not represent taking on that authority personally. For example, someone might leave a church that is very authoritarian and move to a different group that still exerts great authority over their members. This is likely not a change in faith, but merely a change in the particulars of one's faith experience. In other words, you're not shifting. Again, we're not shifting from from three to four, but rather you're taking this moment where this where God is initiating this shift and instead you're going back to stage three and just re-entrenching. And we've talked about that in the podcast before. But if there really is, and he goes, this is the continuation of the article, he says, but if there really is a change in the location of authority, these people examine their faith in a way that they really didn't before. They take a step back from the faith that they accepted when they were younger, and they begin to ask if this faith really works for them. They perhaps engage questions that have been lurking under the surface for a while, but hadn't really been allowed to, allowed, they really hadn't allowed themselves to address. Although a number of college students find themselves here, this isn't just a phase for college students. Research has found that this stage happens for people throughout their adult lives. 
People in this stage are allowing questions to have a foothold in their faith. This can be a powerfully positive experience as people realize that the Christian faith has the sort of depth that holds up well to their questions, especially when they have the opportunity to work through them with thoughtful, articulate people who don't give them easy answers. Again, this article, just like the other, is pointing to this idea of having mentors and how helpful that is. The article continues. It doesn't take a theologian to know that God is bigger than we can imagine. It also makes sense that there will be questions for which we just don't have answers. But a person who listens carefully, thinks through the questions, and explores the beginnings of answers with people in this stage of their faith can be of great help. Some people, according to Kenneth Stokes, are told simply not to question their faith. But this sort of response is not helpful. People in this stage are not going to be satisfied with a, quote, because I told you so, unquote, faith. They want something that they can grapple with. People in this stage seek a church community that allows them to express their faith in their own way. At this point, their faith is quite individualistic. For the first time in their lives, their faith belongs to them as a person instead of them as a group. A few years back, I was talking to a student who told me that she really had her own personal beliefs that didn't match any church or organized group. He goes on to talk about this young lady and the connections that she was making and how it talks about essentially this example of what this transition from stage three into stage four looks like. And when he gets done, he says this. He says, what we sometimes see in this kind of faith and what I saw in that student is a throwing off of the trappings of church, a desire to reinvent faith to get at the heart of what these people see as what really counts. This might involve switching to another church where the faith is perceived as being alive or authentic. It might mean getting involved more deeply in some church education. It might mean staying in the same church, but seeking additional places to grow in faith, whether that is through attending a Bible study at another church, attending lectures and worship services, or just reading things that speak to the person's individual expressions of faith. Of course, other factors might enter into these decisions. Relationships formed over the years, for example, often keep people in their churches even if they feel that their needs are not being met. But however it gets played out, for many people there will come a time when their previously unexamined faith gets put under the microscope. Churches can respond to this stage in a preemptive way by presenting the Christian faith to children in a way that invites questions. We want to give children a faith that shows that we grapple with scripture and seek to discover God's will for our lives. I, I think this is incredible right here. I'm, I'm stopping, you know, reading the article. I'm sharing just the thought from my point of view. This whole inoculation that we talk about within Mormonism, this is exactly what he's talking about. And he's talking about doing it at a young age. Look, invite questions. Guess what, guys? Look at the new youth curriculum. Come follow me. What does it do? It invites questions. The church is picking up on this. They're realizing that if we're going to endure the historical inaccuracies, the theological issues of conflict, if we're going to deal with Mormonism in a real way, we're going to have to do it in a way that invites questions and allows people to talk about the things that they're thinking about. The article goes on. It says, one way we can do this is to give them the stories that show that biblical characters were not always goody-two-shoes types of people. I'm not suggesting that we tell first graders all the details of Judah and Tamar, but I do think it is good for them to know that David faced Absalom as well as Goliath. 
or that Abraham trusted God with Isaac, but wasn't so sure when he said that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. As we get to see the people in the Bible were just like us, we can begin to see that we can worship and have a relationship with God just like they did. If we give children a mere shadow of the full story of God and his people, then when they ask if the faith that they have followed for years actually works, they won't have a good answer. And I think he hits this nail on the head. And I think it's beautiful. And I think he does a wonderful, wonderful job of showing what it is we have to do. We're going to have to just put it all on the table, which I think the Mormon church in very, very concise ways is doing with the Joseph Smith papers, with the gospel topics articles, with the new curriculum that is already here for the youth and for seminary and which is on the way for the adults. It also has to allow us to see leaders as fallible. We talk about it on a surface level, but we're now beginning to dig into what that actually means. Elder Christofferson gave us the right to discard a statement by a leader and not have it be binding as doctrine. Elder Anderson says that we should pay closer attention to those things that all 15 men teach unitedly. And he, and he infers that that's a much smaller group of things than many of us as Mormons thought in the first place. We've had Elder Uchtdorf say that, look, we've made mistakes and some of those have even violated doctrine. We've even acknowledged that things we taught as doctrine officially in the church in the 1940s are now just disavowed theories. We're making this transition. The church as an entity, as a living thing, is moving from stage three into stage four in front of our very eyes. I want to go back now to the Battle of Armageddon article. He begins to talk about kind of moving out of this dark night of the soul and other aspects of stage four. He calls this section, he says, stage four, discovering God's unique purpose. The article says this, it says, some have called this stage the journey inward. The result of the dark night of the soul is an inward journey to discover our true selves, our true purpose. We had a strong sense of purpose in stage three, but that purpose was driven more by the church and by our gifts and talents than by the direction of God. In stage four, we spend more time alone. We love to study deeply and pray. We are eager for the kind of mentors who have walked this way before and can help us dig below the surface. While we have been in relationship with God, we crave something deeper now, both with God and with others. We become frustrated with shallow and surface relationships. We want to go deep with other people. Many others will not will prove, sorry, many others will prove not ready for this. I want to stop there for a second. I, I totally experienced this. I, I have sat down at lunch with family members. I have sent emails off to members of the stake presidency and the bishopric. I have gone into the chapel before a meeting starts and sat down next to a member who I love and care about and simply want to have deeper conversations. I've shared articles with people and said, hey, if you just read this, you'll better understand what I'm going through. Or uh, sit down with somebody and say, hey, what do you think about the way in which we get this principle taught or that principle taught? I'm, I'm craving these deeper discussions and conversations. I'm craving these deeper relationships with people. And yet, unfortunately, so often, uh, I am, I am met with people who are hesitant to open up, who are entrenching in stage three and, and don't want to explore these issues personally, but rather, well, the whole church teaches this and that's the stance I take. It, and it's almost like you're the bad guy for having these kinds of conversations. And and you're almost kind of crazy for even sharing your journey 
as if you should just keep it to yourself. So I totally understand the pain that comes with this. And, uh, and I hope that each of you are finding someone who you can have these kinds of conversations with. Thankfully, uh, and, and it may sound strange, but by me being able to talk in this microphone and by thousands of you pushing play on your iPod or your MP3 player or your computer and listening to what I'm saying, you've given me someone to talk to. And while I, I don't get to hear all of you respond directly back, I feel heard and I feel validated. And I know from many of you who do write how much you appreciate the things this podcast does. My My hope is that more of you will write me, will leave comments on the episodes on the website so that people can begin to kind of have a little bit of a sense of community that we can begin to kind of talk with each other and uh, learn from each other and hopefully make this transition more smoothly. The article continues. It says, We have been satisfied with a general sense of God's direction for our lives, but now we want a more personal direction from God. We want to discover our uniqueness, that unique purpose that God designed for us from the beginning, a purpose unlike any other on this earth. This is a crucial part of this stage of the spiritual walk. After all, if you are a dentist or a doctor, you will be out of a job in eternity. But if you have discovered God's unique purpose for your existence, you will continue to exercise that purpose throughout eternity. You may discover that many of the rituals and practices of your faith tradition don't work for you anymore. Yet, you are even more bonded to those in that tradition who have found their unique purpose as well. This is also a time to experience healing of unresolved psychological and spiritual issues. You are becoming a whole person, filling in the gaps and tasting something of what could be in a more intimate walk with God. In a sense, this is a move from the head to the heart. It is a second conversion. The sense of romance with God returns, but at a much deeper level than before. Since the fourth stage of spiritual development concerns relationships, let me briefly share a helpful summary of the stages of friendship. And I'm going to stop there. You're welcome to read this on your own. But he there, he now takes about half a page in the article to talk about different kinds of relationships and friendships and levels of friendship and in what the differences are in stage four versus stage three. I do want to read one part of, of this, though. Uh, he says, as we enter into relationships, we feel our way up this ladder, checking constantly to see if the other party is as willing to be vulnerable as we are. If a relationship is at stage two, and he's talking about the stages of friendship or relationship, the exchange of facts and reports, the one party will throw out an opinion or judgment to see how the other party responds. If the relationship survives that move, it grows to that stage. If it does not, the venturesome party may pull back and relegate that relationship to the casual category. One of the problems in marriage is that one spouse will confront another, yet the other is not even willing to share feelings, much less faults. This is an unbalanced relationship. We must earn our way into intimacy with another. There are many other implication, implications of these stages of friendship, but those will have to be explored another time. So I just want to say that there's this issue, that if we are trying to have these conversations, say I'm struggling and I want to go sit and talk to my bishop. If I sit down with my bishop and I just throw out the case against the church, of course that's going to cause him to put walls up. If we want to build relationships with others, we're going to have to respect their feelings, their thoughts, their opinions, 
their beliefs, we're going to have to offer our view as an alternative, not as us being right and them being wrong. By doing that, we can build this friendship, this relationship, this intimacy between two people that allows both to open up and to put walls down and to set weapons aside. Now, the article continues. It says, in this spiritual life, stage four people tend to be very impatient with shallow relationships. They want to push on to intimacy as quickly as possible. And I'll stop there. I, I see that absolutely in myself. The article continues. It says, that is where the real growth happens, speaking about intimate relationships. But most people are not equally willing, so stage four people often feel alone or connect deeply with only one or two people, usually mentors. The cocktail circuit, where people move around a room and share facts, reports, and an opinion or two, unless fueled by the agent of pseudo-relationship, a.k.a. alcohol, but keep the deeper levels of themselves locked up, has little interest for a stage four spiritual person. How do you recognize that someone is in stage four? They are constantly asking challenging questions. While this can indicate a lack of faith, in a spiritual person, it is a sign that God is calling them deeper. Stage four people like to be alone, yet are eager for mentoring. Cavaliers simply enjoy tripping people up with their questions. Stage four believers are genuinely seeking answers. When they find the right person, they are quick to open their hearts. They are known by their desire for deep relationships. The cavalier uses questions to avoid relationship with spiritual people. The stage four believer uses questions to determine who is willing to go deep in relationship. He then says, the article then says, there are points of concern with stage four as well. Places where people can get stuck and stop growing spiritually. Stage four people can get stuck wallowing in negative thinking or discouragement. They are sometimes consumed with self-assessment. They spend huge amounts of time journaling, processing, and in self-absorption. Uh, I'll just stop there. That describes me to a T and probably describes many of you. All right, I'll go on. They may be constantly wondering why and never finding answers. They may even enjoy the sense of spiritual ambiguity. This can drive their friends crazy. They feel no one understands them and sometimes they are right. They can become immobilized by the struggle. There is a doubt that leads to faith, the true stage four experience. But there is also a doubt that leads to more doubt. Stage four is wonderful as a transition to a deeper walk with God, but it can be a miserable place to get stuck. How do you help people move on at this stage? Now I'm going to stop here for a moment. I'm going to read this last paragraph and, uh, and we'll kind of wrap up. But I hope that you'll read these two articles and I hope you'll take a look at the other sources that I share. There are also several books written by James Fowler. I'm sorry, James W. Fowler, not W. James Fowler, but James W. Fowler. There are several books written by him that talk about faith development and in relationship to church and uh, our relationship to God. And I hope you'll read those. I want to also, before I read this, I want to kind of preface this, this last little paragraph. The transition from stage four into stage five, I think I mentioned this at the beginning. I understand it intellectually. I don't understand it in my heart. And just like you, I'm trying to get there. And for me, this podcast is part of that effort to try and get there. So while you search out for mentors, mentors, look, look for people who seem to kind of have made their way into the stage five. I would add people that I see in these, uh, in these transitions that are further ahead than me. Uh, David Bakavoy, Fiona Givens, uh, Terrell Givens, um, 
Maxine Hanks. Uh, there's so many others. We could just sit and we could just list people who it would be be well deserved to sit at their feet and just listen to them share their thoughts and to talk about things. Uh, I've got friends that I email back and forth uh, that I've had conversations with about these kinds of discussions and issues and how I how I think about things and they've been a huge help and they're one step ahead of me. But the key is not to find somebody so far ahead that you can't figure out how to get there, but somebody who is just outside your reach that encourages you to kind of take a step outside your comfort zone and to do that. So here's the last paragraph. It says, encourage stage four people that their questions and doubts are not a scuttling of the spiritual journey, but a renewed call from God to a deeper relationship with him. What stage four people need in their mentors above all else is acceptance and affirmation. They tend to be very hard on themselves. Help them know that God is with them in their questions, in their searching, and even in their doubt. Encourage them to let God out of the box that he may have been placed in during stages two and three. Encourage them to be open to God's teaching and leading. Help them process past traumas honestly. And if you are in over your head, refer them to someone who is better equipped to help. With the help of a high-level mentor and much solitude, Stage four people can be ready to grow to the next stage. They can hear God's call to move back out into the world again. The journey inward in the dark night of the soul helps us find our true purpose and prepares us for deeper service to others. I finish simply by saying that again, look at these articles, read them. There are lots of things that come after where I stopped that are very pertinent to shifting into the stage five and even talks about what is found in stage six that perhaps we can at least set as a goal, something to kind of keep at the forefront of our mind. I bear witness that the dark night of the soul is tough. Many of you know that personally. I know that personally. While I am still a foot deep in stage four, I realize the beauty and the breath of fresh air that stage five can be. I also testify that like these two articles, I testify that this journey through the dark night of the soul is a call from God, not a call from science or the humanities or of relativism to simply discard our Father in heaven, but rather a call from God to dig a deeper relationship with him. I bear witness that God loves each of you, that while this journey is tough, you are not alone, and I stand here to put an arm around your shoulder while God warms your shoulders. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Taking out my issues never healed the 